Hi, good afternoon everybody. Uh, my, name's, my name's Peter Byrne. I'm a, a NHS psychiatrist and a founder member of this wonderful Scottish Mental Health Arts and Film Festival. Uh, and beside me I have the writer and broadcaster John Kavanagh. And John is going to speak uh, about his book, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which is a book about Sid Barrett. And I'm going to uh, introduce the subject to you uh, via the medium of film. And we're going to begin, if we may, with the clip, the opening music clip of Pink Floyd uh, to try and uh, get some of you younger folk uh, to see this band as they were meant to be seen. Uh, I know the acoustics may not be, well, I think the acoustics are pretty darn good here, but whenever you can roll in that clip, we'll start with the clip, then I'm going to speak to John about Sid, and then we're going to have a performance of our new play, which Sasha is going to key up for us, and then we're going to open it up to the floor. So I hope we've got an exciting lineup. We will give this the full hour 10, maybe hour, five, hour and 10 minutes that I think it deserves. So can we roll the clip? As Gay Byrne is fond of saying. Can you roll it there, Colette? <laughs> Run VT. And I'm related to Gay Byrne. <laughs> you into what we're speaking about. The best way I can introduce uh, John's book, The Piper of the Gates of Dawn, Pink Floyd's The Piper of the Gates of Dawn, is, is an excerpt from the book. He says, it's a wondrous collection often seen through the distorted view of later events. This is the album. Uh, these things have served to overshadow the achievement of Pink Floyd in this, their debut album, an outstanding group performance, a milestone in record production, and something made in much happier circumstances than I had expected to find. This is not another book about mad Sid, inverted commas. This instead is a celebration of a moment when everything seemed possible, when creative worlds and forces converged, and when an album spoke with an entirely new voice. Such music I never dreamed of, as Rat said to the mole. <laughs> Do you want to tell us about Sid? Sid Barrett was born Roger Keith Barrett in Cambridge on the 6th of January 1946. He was an extraordinarily attractive child and young man. He was someone for whom when I was writing the book the word beautiful kept coming up and it wasn't just from women who were attracted to him or who had been involved with him or there were people like Peter Whitehead who shot the footage that you just saw at the UFO Club and also at Sound Technique Studios who described Sid quite happily as, as beautiful. Uh, I think that was an inward and an outward beauty. He was someone who always was, as the title of Rob Chapman's excellent biography uh, would, would aver, a very irregular head. He had a very irregular head. He was someone who, when he was growing up, was seen as a bit different anyway. And when he was 16, his father, Max Barrett, who worked at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge, died. And he had suffered cancer. He had a very painful 
and very vocally painful time of that in the last months of his life, which, it, according to Sid's sister in particular, affected Sid a great deal. And that was a major turning point with the young Barrett. He was a gifted visual artist. He had a fantastic sense of humour, and he also had a feeling for music. He wasn't one of those naturally intuitive musicians who just picked up a guitar and suddenly, whap, there it all was. He had to work hard at it, but he wanted to work hard at it, and he became a musician of very original qualities and a very original songwriter. The bands that he was associated with that became the Pink Floyd, eventually the nucleus of those people drifted from Cambridge to London. They became... In a short period of time in 1966, the, the darlings of the underground set, with a following which grew exponentially from week to week in the underground UFO club and at events fundraising for the free school in London and, and a lot of the, the counterculture things that would eventually lead on to such publications as International Times magazine, they were heavily involved in that. Can, and, can I ask you, I mean, Sid, he loved blues, he had a magnificent record collection, isn't that so? He, he certainly had, had a very eclectic taste in music. Yes. And, and he brought the two names of two blues players to the to the name the Pink, Pink Floyd. Pink Anderson and Floyd Council were the name of two fairly obscure Mississippi Delta yeah, newsmen yeah. Who, who were brought to that uh, arena. Okay. Yeah, and, and I yeah. saw, just in reading about him, um, that he would, even as, a, as an adolescent, he would introduce himself to people. He, was, he seemed quite an outgoing guy who sort of... He was obviously at the centre of things by the time he got this band together, but yes, he, yes. he was certainly a very... Um, you mentioned his, the, the death of a parent at, at the age of 12, but he, he certainly was somebody who, who was able, you know, had the people skills and clearly uh, was driven by music. Clearly driven by yeah. music, but he was also, the people skills undeniably. I mean, he yeah. was an absolute magnet for people and he was someone who was very giving to people of, of all ages. You know, it wasn't just that he was the one at the front of the band, you know, in the, in the classic rock star cliche of pulling the women or whatever. He was very giving to lots of different people. There was one young guy who later became uh, a well-known actor called Matthew Scurfield. And Matthew's half-brother, Ponji, was very part of, much part of Sid's intimate circle. But... Matthew was a few years younger than, than Ponji, and when he used to come up to London to visit his brother, he'd be about 14, 15, and he just used to absolutely be enthralled with the company of Sid Barrett. It wasn't a case of, well, I'm in a band now, so you're some young boy, I don't want to know. You know, he was completely involving of people. He loved people, he was outgoing, mm, mm. and he had great qualities of, of communication mm, with people mm. too. Okay, all right. And, and the early days of the band and his kind of creative input into their first album, how would you talk about that time? Pretty much total. Uh, yeah. The first album has a couple of things that were band improvisations that became more concise pieces on the record. But as far as it went, um, I think only two of the tracks on Piper at the Gates of Dawn are not entirely credited to Sid Barrett. Uh, let's, lest we forget, because this will come up later in the discussion, he was born Roger Keith Barrett. The Sid part was a name that was used during the time when he was in music and which he devolved himself from later on. So we'll refer to him as Sid as far as the music's concerned, but we may also refer to him as Roger in another context, just in case that becomes okay. confusing okay. down the line. But as far as the first album's concerned and parts of the second album, his imprimatur is all over the band. Okay. And when he ceased to be involved with Pink Floyd, there was quite a time when they still tried to sound like the Sid Barrett sound of Pink Floyd because that was what they had developed. That was, if you like, their image. Okay. And then they had to grow in other directions to survive. OK, so you'll be aware that us two old men are the warm-up now for the, the excerpt <laughs> for, uh, from uh, Alan Bissett's new play, One Thinks That All Is a Dream, The Life of Sid Barrett, that you will get a chance to see in its entirety uh, at this October's Mental Health Arts and Film Festival. But we're going to have a, a, a played excerpt from this in about five, ten minutes. But I, I just want to focus on the fact that when Sid, you know, became off... I won't even use the word unwell, but when, he, when things started to go wrong for Sid, you've, you've told me, we spoke about this before, that there's kind of an industry around this, isn't there? There's kind of the mad Sid industry, as I, as I implied. The, yeah, the, exactly. The, the tortured genius, the kind of, uh, yeah, this yeah, sort of, yeah. you know, very, you know, lazy journalism, 
we would say in mental health terms, you know, very stigmatising stereotypes. Do you want to speak first about the bad, le- the untrue legend, and then we'll give people some truths? Well, let's see where, yeah. the, where the untrue legends begin. There was a, an otherwise excellent piece of journalism by a really good writer called Nick Kent, who was a would-be rock star himself. He had brushed with the Sex Pistols and various other things along the way. And Kent wrote the first piece that actually examined the darker side of what was happening to Sid Barrett. Many of the quotes that we know as, as classic Barrett lines are sourced from that piece of journalism. Many of the myths of Sid Barrett are also sourced from that piece of journalism. Now, I'll take one, for example. There's a myth of Sid Barrett going on stage with brill cream slicked in his hair, and then he takes a handful of mandrax, drugs of the time, if you're not familiar with that, and he crumbles them all up and puts them in his hair, and he's underneath the lights in this auditorium or theatre or cinema, depending on which version you're going with, and the whole thing sort of melts down like a wax candle dripping down his face as he fails to perform under the lights. Now, this is a story that was related in Nick Kent's piece of journalism, not as a truth, but as an example of stories that were told about Sid Barrett. Nick Kent did not say this had substantiation. He said, here are some of the stories. There's another one where Sid Barrett's on the runway of an airport, flagging down a plane as though it's a taxi. Now, even in the less heightened security era that we're talking about, <laughs> consider how ridiculous this is. You, you're going to get on the air, an airport runway and flag down a mm, plane? I don't think this is going to happen. But... Kent put these pieces in his 5,000-word essay about Barrett as an example of the stories that were told, not as truth, but truth is what they became. Mark Almond says in his his autobiography, the truth is what people believe, and it was never truer than in connection with that. The Mandrake story, part of it, Nick Mason tells a story about Sid at a gig on their American tour of 67 trying to straighten a bad perm with some Braille cream. Um, Sam Hutt who later became known as Hank Wangford, a popular TV personality, added the mandrakes in. Um, The manager of The Move says he saw this happen at a gig in London in September 67. Somebody else says they saw it happen in a gig in February 68, which Sidney didn't actually play at. You know, there are many versions of it, Mm -hmm. and they're all... It's people that claim to have seen it. You know, it's a bit yeah. like people who went to see the Sex Pistols at the 100 Club. Yeah. You could fill a football stadium. Sure, there. sure. And, and is Nick the guy who went to the door, Sid told him to take a hike, and he looked in the window and then wrote about what he saw inside Sid's living room? Ah, that, that, who's that? That's, that's a little bet noir of mine. There are many books about uh, Roger Barrett or Sid Barrett. One of them is called Madcap by Tim Willis. Now, I'm not really into naming and shaming. And he's not in the room, is he? And he's not in the room. And if or he his was, relatives. If he was, I'd still say it anyway, because uh, this, this is pretty appalling. Um, Tim Willis's Madcap was... It was punted as something that was going to really tell the inside story of Barrett because he had access to people in a way that previous attempts at biography on Sid didn't have. Um, Tim Willis was part of David Gilmore's social circle, David Gilmore being the friend of of Sid's pre-Pink Floyd days, who later became his de facto replacement in the band and through their, their massive global success. So through his connection to David Gilmore, Tim Willis got access to all sorts of people that he otherwise would have found it very hard to track down and make contact with. One of them, for example, was Roger Waters' mother, who was in her 90s by this point. And Willis called up Roger Waters' mother one day and said, "Ah, Mrs Waters, uh, I'm I'm missing um, Sid Barrett's address. I had it written down somewhere because he didn't have it at all. And he got this elderly woman, he was about 94 or something at the time, to give Sid's address to him. Now, if you'd listened to the TV personality's song, I Know Where Sid Barrett Lives, it was in the lyric, Six in Margaret Square. <laughs> Everybody knew where Sid Barrett lived, but Tim Willis, this great journalist, had to phone Roger Waters' mother and con her out of it. So he goes round there and he knocks on the door and Sid comes to the door and says he's not really interested in talking to some journalist and he's like, you know, please just go away, I don't do this anymore, you know, I'm not... Long time ago, go away, go away. So Sid gives him, as I say, the bum's rush. Willis then looks in the front window and describes what's in the lounge. 
I mean, how creepy is that? And that's the start of his book. His book opens with, I went and doorstepped Sid Barrett, Roger Barrett, at his house when he was trying to have a private life, decades after he was in the Pink Floyd. And the rest of the book is this slightly embittered tale of how he takes it out on Barrett for not talking to him. And it's full of all that stuff that says, well, when Sid Barrett wrote this song, here's what he was thinking. Mm. Fantastic. Mm. You know, and I, I just thought it was absolutely so, appalling piece so of journalism. I suppose no one is shocked by made-up journalism, made-up quotes, what we call Boris Johnson journalism <laughs> in this uh, modern age. So, I don't um, really expect Boris to make it into this, but I'm, I'm yeah, happy. Yeah, I wanted to get here. that link in. So... Before we do the excerpt, um, what what have you patched together about those, you know, the the, the difficult years? And, and can you just paint a picture of Sid Barrett uh, after Pink Floyd? There is a point in late 1967, and I'd like to highlight this as an example of the dichotomy between fact and fiction, and just how much or how little we actually know. And this is the whole problem with any approach to Barrett's life. Last night, Douglas Stewart, who's here, who spoke at the opening of of these events this morning, posted something to my page on Facebook. And it's a little film clip of Sid Barrett and Pink Floyd performing a thing called Jug Band Blues. This is seen as said swan song to the band. It's the closing track on their second album, Sociful of Secrets, which features three, possibly more, contributions from Sid. And it's it's a beautiful song. But by the time this happened, uh, Sid's behaviour is deemed, if you take the the myths of, of Barrett to heart, as being completely and utterly untenable in performance. Late 1967, Sid was off the scale. Sid was incapable of miming. Sid would go on stage and, you know... And, and yes, there are incidents that cause these things to arise. There, there was an occasion when he went to play a session for the BBC Saturday Club and he walked out after one number. That happened. He came back with the Pink Floyd five days before Christmas 1967 and performed an exquisite version of Jug Band Blues, which became part of a, a Top Gear session co-presented by John Peel and Tommy Vance at the time, usually seen as Peel sessions. But uh, he recorded this version of the song, and then, it must have been into 68, a film was made of the band performing it, and said mimes and lip-syncs perfectly to this song. There's like one line where you can tell that it's not a professional mm. lip-syncing mm. artist who is doing it. Now, this was at the time when we're told Sid was not being picked up to be taken to gigs because he couldn't perform anymore. Sid wouldn't, wouldn't, definitely wouldn't mime anything. He would not do that. You know, this is completely contradictory to all the myths, and yet it exists as a film. It exists as a factual document. And a lot of it is, yes, he had off nights, mm. But when he had on nights, he was still fantastic. But the off nights of what had become focused, the end of the telescope has just focused right in on this. You know, it's, it's turned around, it's become a microcosm of what this man was, and that's become the myth. OK, and, and what happened to Sid then as, as he finished, finished out his days? He, he tried solo performing, I know. Well, he did more than, yeah. he did more yeah. than try it. He, yeah. was, uh, he, he made two albums as a solo artist. The first of them, we are told, was the product of a... An, a <laughs> I balk at using the word, but Peter used it in inverted commas, but especially in this room under these circumstances, but the word mad is used. In the title of the album, it's called The Mad Cat Laughs. This was actually David Gilmore who came up with it. It was supposed to be a playful allusion mm. to a line in the song Octopus. It was not supposed to be, you know, setting Sid as this, uh, you know, crazy, crazy. But that's how it's perceived. And we're seen as, uh, seen, as seen as being the product of this this underachiever, the failed rock star, all the rest of it. It's actually a, a top five uh, album mm. in 1970. Mm. It was a very successful album. It's a very beautiful album. But there's some very troubling parts in it which are the 
honest reflections of somebody who by that time is not perhaps engaging with people in the conventional sense of how these things happen in studios. Now, he lived in a flat in Weatherby Mansions in Ells Court, shared a flat with an artist called Dougie Fields. Dougie still lives there. I've been in the the actual room where the Mm -hmm. Madcap Laughs album cover was shot by by Mick Rock and Stone Thorgerson. And uh, Dougie remembers Sid being there and how he would stay in bed all morning and Dougie would maybe say, all right, Sid, you know, you're getting up, going to do something. But as long as he stayed in bed, the possibilities were infinite. As soon as he got up, the possibilities limited. And a lot of the possibilities were limited by the expectations of having been Sid Barrett in this now exponentially successful band. You know. Okay. So it isn't just the the tall poppy syndrome that someone had been immensely successful and then was sort of cut down to size by a pretty feral press, but also this idea that he himself uh, couldn't re-achieve that that huge level of creativity and recognition that he'd had before. Is that is that the way we should see it? Or I think yeah. one of the ways that we should see it, it is perhaps that Barrett saw himself first and principally as a visual artist. He was a very gifted painter. But he appears to have realised, and I keep using words like appears to and so on, because I cannot say what went on between Roger Barrett's ears. You know, I'm not going to say he did this, he thought that, because I'm falling into the same trap as the rest of the gang here. He appears to have wanted to get back to a situation where he could be a visual artist again. But he appears to have realised that anything he did was going to be viewed through the lens of Pink Floyd. And once it got to the stage of the success of Dark Side of the Moon, which was one of the biggest albums of all time, and still is, once it got on to that stage, Mm. there was a whole other level of interest in Sid Barrett. There was something about the early years of this band and how they had this this guy who had a kind of poetic, romantic beauty about him and wasn't there anymore and wasn't functioning in that way that these incredibly successful guys were functioning in. The fact is that they weren't really enjoying functioning at that level either, which got on to the the rest of, of Pink Floyd's music, which rather reflects... What happened? Being you know, famous, welcome sure, to the machine. Yeah. Yeah. Come okay. in here, dear boy, have okay. a cigar, all so that stuff. I'm going to take Chairman's prerogative and ask Sasha to introduce the excerpt now from Think of It All as a Dream, the new play by Alan Bissett. And uh, myself and John are going to vacate the stage to give our chairs to our three actors. Just to say, uh, Alan Bissett wants to apologise for not being here. He has just, his wife has just given birth to a baby boy. So he's very disappointed to not be here, but obviously happy in another way. Um, And I think if he was to be here, the event would probably last a week. Um, He's totally obsessed with Pink Floyd and Sid Barrett and has a, you know, a complete, has a complete fascination with the band. We've been collaborating for about eight years together and that whole time we've been thinking about ways of how to create a play based around Pink Floyd so when the Andrew Eaton Lewis from the Mental Health Festival approached Alan he just jumped at the chance to write a play and I think what's fascinating is the the character of Sid Barrett and his story in relation to the band um, and their relationships to his mental health and to the continuation which um, John and Peter described about how the band then began living what Sid Barrett separated himself from and the guilt that carried on from him leaving the band. So um, today we're going to show you an excerpt that actors have been just working this morning. And the first scene we're going to show you is a scene between R.D. Lang and Roger Waters. And the second scene is going to be a scene between a journalist and Sid Barrett. And if there's any other questions about the play after that... um, Please feel free to ask away. Thank you. Mr. Waters, how much do you know about the work I've done in psychiatry? I know that the underground really digs you. 
I know you've taken LSD, I know you have a different conception of madness than the rest of them. Exactly. When schizophrenics behave or speak in strange ways, they are acting out distress about the environment, making it visible to others around them. Those who undergo so-called psychotic episodes are often just trying to communicate in a perhaps limited way their actual worries and concerns in situations where their free expression is not permitted or, or even possible. No, he's definitely mad. Yes, Mr. Waters, but I do not consider lunacy to be a, a mental illness. Rather, it's an inward journey during which a person tries to find themselves. It's made necessary by their sub-nature, by the masked violence of contemporary life. Indeed, I cannot stress enough of the pressures of society and the development of madness. So, we're all freaking sit out with our own heavy vibes. Is that it? I'm simply asking, how do you know it's sin? There's a problem. Uh, Mr. Barrett, it, it's now been over three years since you left the Pink Floyd. Where are you in your solo career? I'm just treading the backwards path. And how is your state of mind? I'm full of dust and guitars. Do you have any plans to work with the Pink Floyd again in the future? Well, I'm not setting out to do anything. Do you feel like you still have something to prove? I've never proved myself wrong. But I really need to prove myself right. How would you describe yourself as an artist? I have a very irregular head. How do you think the world perceives you? I'm not who you think I am. What are your memories of the summer of love? One thinks of it all as a dream. Is pop music an art form? I don't know. Pop music is an art form as much as sitting down is. How do you feel about your friend David Gilman replacing you in the Pink Floyd? I'm avoiding most things now. Where are you living? I'm disappearing. Could you repeat that, please? What? All of it. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I'm treading a dusty path. Uh, I'm full of backwards heads. I have a very irregular guitar. I'm not setting out to do what you think I am. I've never proved myself pop. I really need to prove myself music. I don't know if sitting down is an art form. I think as much as being right or wrong is. I'm avoiding those dreams. One thinks of it all as disappearing. I'm treading the irregular dust. I'm full of heads and most things. I really need to dream that you think I'm not. I don't know if I'm dreaming as much as artful. I think so much of disappearing. One thinks of it all as pop music. I'm avoiding the wrong guitars. I'm treading the disappearing head. I'm dreaming backwards. I'm full of the irregular part. I'm not what you think I'm proving myself to be. I don't know of most things as an art form. I think so much as dust is. One thinks of it all as sitting down. Two pretty powerful excerpts. One is a psychiatrist who wants to be a journalist, and one is a journalist who wants to be a psychiatrist. But in the middle of it all, you've got Sid. What do you think of those two? And I'm going to open it up after after John. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I think we're already seeing in especially the second piece there. You know, the the reaction to of Sid to inane questions mm. and part of the reason why he he didn't like the machine um, 
There are certain people who can survive the vicissitudes of the music business. To borrow a line from Johnny Mitchell, the star maker machinery behind the popular song. And if you look at someone like Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, you know, you've got people there who can ride through and survive and they're thick enough skinned to do it and, and keep doing it. They want to do that, they want to be there. Then you get the, the other sort of person. Someone, Nick Drake is another example of someone who didn't like the machinery. He was passionate about the music, he was passionate about the art, but the actual slog of having to do it just seemed to be something facile and, and something very, very false about this whole thing. And I get the feeling that uh, Sid Barrett was was looking at this business and, you know, loving part of it. But then the whole idea that all people wanted to hear was the hit single over and over and over again. And the processes of doing this thing, it, it became like it, it wasn't artistic fulfilment. Mm. It was a job like any other job, except it had a, an awful lot of dirt that went with it. Mm. And, you know, that second scene just highlighted those this kinds of questions. That's, that's what happens all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an example of something that's got nothing whatsoever to do with Sid Barrett and the Pink Floyd. It's a radio example. People in this room may know me as a, as a radio person. And this is the kind of story that just sums up what is... You know, people just don't do their homework. And when they go to an artist, and most people who go to an artist to interview them have not done their homework, don't care, and it shows. Mm -hmm. And that's why if you've got somebody, and, you know, I'm not trying to take any great credit of, hey, I'm great. I just try and do the homework mm -hmm. and try and go in there and show that I've done the homework. Mm -hmm. And that's why artists are like, oh, here's somebody who's done more than mm -hmm. scratch the mm -hmm. surface. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's something wonderful I'm doing. I think that's just what everybody should be doing. That's the, that's the gig, you know, that's the kind of standard we should aim for. Edwin Collins, who's familiar to many people as, as his involvement with Orange Juice, his solo music, um, spent years after Orange Juice split trying to form his own name without somebody saying, oh, back in the heyday of the early 80s, when you were with Orange Juice, oh, God, it was 20 years ago, you know, give us a break. And he came out with an album in the, in the 90s which did that. The song Girl Like You broke Edwin Collins as a much bigger thing than Orange Juice had, had ever been around the world. But there he was at the point when he was promoting this album, Gorgeous George. He's in a radio studio. It's Radio Leeds or Leicester, one of the local radio stations in England, beginning with an L. And he's wheeled in in front of the DJ and not given any introduction, just sat down and this guy's got a record on. <laughs> oh, and here's Edwin Collins and uh, Edwin back in your heyday in the early 80s. And Edwin's thinking, oh, God, here we go, with hits like Living on the Ceiling. And Edwin goes, uh, that wasn't me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he mentions another record that yeah. wasn't Orange Juice. And Edwin's going, no, no, no. And he's got the record queued up to play, yeah. you know. Uh, and Edwin goes... Um, but, but that wasn't me, that wasn't me. Yeah, when you were in Blumange. No, no, that was Neil Arthur. I'm Edwin Collins, I was in Orange Juice by this point reclaiming it. And the guy goes, oh, well, you know how it is. Uh, food, drink, orange juice, Blumange. <laughs> now, that's, that's an example I know firsthand from Edwin Collins. Mm. That's what Roger Barrett, Sid Barrett, was living through for decades after he'd tried to get away from it. He mm. still had these people coming up to the door and asking him daft questions about the Pink yeah, Floyd. Yeah. I mean, we were talking, I think another great artist of the 20, 20th century, Stanley Kubrick, got labelled a recluse because he just got fed up with dumb journalist <laughs> questions. And he was asked, I think after Lolita, uh, uh, a question about the film, and he said, you know, please, he actually interrupted the question and said, He's, I'm quoting T.S. Eliot, he said, it says what it says. If I wanted to make a different film, I would have made a different film. Why are you even asking me this? And he was then put down as a difficult interviewer and then he became a recluse, which he was never a recluse. And, and then, of course, journalists did the Boris Johnson and they made up the quote anyway. So, uh, yes, I think we're, we're into that. Now, let's, let's hear from the audience. We've, we've set this up for you. Anybody want to engage and ask about the... My, uh, very, what would you like to ask? Um, I'm very the notion of people like Sid Barrett, Brian Wilson, where they almost 
become claimed to be this great genius more because they've had mental health issues or there's been a legend created around supposed mental health issues more than actually the fact that they created incredible groundbreaking music yeah. and just about reflections on the danger of that because it's almost made to be something almost to aspire to and it's something that if you are like this, if you are the mad artist, you are therefore a more valid artist. Yeah. And I think yeah. that becomes quite a dangerous thing because it's the opposite almost of I think people be open about mental health issues in an honest way. It's a, a way that's actually I think, dangerous and well, I mean, it's interesting that the anti-stigma campaign down in England has sort of tied celebrity a lot to their campaign, which, and I don't think that's helpful because I think when you tie celebrity to mental illness so tightly, people, and that's one in four of us who have mental health problems, will go, well, why, why haven't I got a second album or a TV show or writing a new book and no one's going to invite me on Desert Island Discs anytime soon? So I, I think that's bad. And the myth of the mad genius is something we've always battled against. Because I, I think that's another version of journalists trying to think they understand something and then putting somebody in the box. And, and I, I think it's fantastic to be creative, but uh, the most creative people I know, and many creative people uh, work in business and even the NHS, there are a lot of creative psychopaths around as well. They're, they're not easy to be around because they're very creative, and I get that. It doesn't make them mad or unusual. It just means that they're different. So I think tying the two together isn't helpful. Uh, sometimes what artists have said is it's a bit like jazz, that the best jazz comes out of making a mistake. So sometimes somebody can can have had a, an episode of depression or whatever. For Sid, it never had a, you know, a term. He never saw a psychiatrist. Uh, but out of that bad, difficult period came different a different way of seeing the world, different art. And I, I think that's maybe a better way to see it. I don't think the, you know, mental health problem, the disorder brought about the art. I think the art was about, it could have been about that, but often people want to write and experience different things. So what do you think? Well, first of all, yeah. I'm amazed that there's only one in four people who have so-called mental health problems. I would have thought it'd be much higher than yeah. that because, yeah. you know, just about everybody I know, me included, had interesting times. I mean, who hasn't? Mm. I think that's probably more to do with admission than, than actual content. But... Another good example of what Douglas uh, sets the scene with Brian Wilson said Barrett would be Joe Meek. Now, I'm fascinated by Joe Meek as a creative, innovative record producer and sound artist. Many people are fascinated with Joe Meek because he happened to take the life of his landlady and himself one fateful day mm. in 1967. Oh, and it was the anniversary of Buddy Holly's death. And, oh, Phil Spector shot somebody on the same day. You know, you can extrapolate all sorts of things from these. And many people seem to savour that side of it. I think of an, an example here of, of the myths of, of said and the procreation of the myths of said. I've got a, a book here, apart from my own, which I'll just show sure. you. That's the Spanish edition. There's an Italian edition as well. There's going to be a Korean edition, apparently, at some point. I, I hope they don't ask me to proofread it. Um, but here's, here's one that I do really recommend. Julian Palacios' book, um, Lost in the Woods, is a very affectionate profile of Barrett. But this one here is by Rob Chapman. It's called Sid Barrett, A Very Irregular Head. And in it, Chapman, who's a very diligent, meticulous journalist, tries his best to dispel the myths of, of Sid Barrett by examining in forensic detail how they grew, when they mm -hmm. grew, and what substance there is to them. Now, he put this out. We actually did something here in Glasgow about it a few years ago when it arrived, along with Barry Miles, a man who was there on the scene at the time and thought this was a wonderful thing too. And out came this book, which sets not just... Barrett's time in the limelight with Pink Floyd, not just his time with Madcap Laughs and Barrett and the other musical mm. things, but also gets full access to Rosemary Breen, um, Roger's sister, gets much access to people who knew him at the, the checkout of supermarkets in Cambridge. You know, the fact that here was this recluse, like your Kubrick mm. story, here was this recluse, but he was a regular down the pub in the Cherry Hinton Road. Mm. You know, he would socialise, he'd chat to people yeah. if they weren't trying to talk the same old rubbish to him. Mm. And so Rob Chapman put out this book with a very, I think, affectionate and poignant profile 
of Roger Barrett as he grew older and what was known about him and his life and how he engaged with people, how he had a, a wonderful rapport, for example, with children in the, in the area. You know, people would go around to see him and very, very young people, instant connection. Mm. You know, they, mm. they loved this guy. Um, and yet, when the book appeared, Rob Chapman started getting hate mail. And one of the figures, and I'm not going to name this person as I I did earlier on with one of the biographers, but one of the figures who did this has been one of the most prominent um, operators of Sid Barrett websites in the history of such things on the internet. He's been running Sid Barrett websites for 20 years. He also has a conviction for conning elderly people out of their savings on the court records of the state of Arizona. You know, this guy is is a dodgy, manipulative person, but he makes a whole thing out of the myths of the tortured Mm -hmm. star. Not just Barrett. He's had dabblings with all the members of the 13th floor elevator, some of whom don't have anything to do with him. Rocky Erickson is a sort of American Sid Barrett, if you will, in terms of his his life post the, the brief blip of the band's success. And yet this guy is leeching on the myths of Barrett. He wants those myths to survive. He wants them to flourish because that's what he's selling. Mm. And along comes this book that says, well, actually, you know, Barrett wasn't on the runway of the airport flagging down the plane like it was a Mm. taxi. This Mm. is rubbish. No, the man in Arizona doesn't like that. He didn't want to hear it. Okay. So your book has to fit in a certain section of the the bookstore, doesn't it, to to sell your book. So thanks, Douglas. Any Yes, yourself, sir. Yeah. His birthday this weekend, yeah. It occurred to me as John was speaking that the, the within Hamlet is this idea of Hamlet puts on a play where he pretends to be mad. And uh, this idea of the mad, tortured uh, individual uh, has just been in literature. I, I'm pretty sure Ulysses in, in the Iliad uh, also pretends to be mad uh, to escape one of the, the challenges. So, yeah, when, when will it end? Yeah. I don't think yeah. it will end. Yeah. I, think, I think it's a fascination that's going to continue. And I think that uh, rock music and, well popular culture, youth culture, if you like, from James Dean, Marilyn Monroe mm. onwards, gives us a whole new model that was once mm. in the world of the romantic mm. poets. So I think that's, that's set to continue. Yeah, I mean, you can blame the audience or you can blame, inverted commas, print broadcast journalism. But I do remember, I mean, we've been working for 20 years trying to change reporting on mental health. And we used to make a joke to journalists when we briefed them that we're never going to see a headline, you know, man attends psychiatric day hospital. That's never going to be a headline because that's what happened. Uh, he benefited from that, but that will never sell a newspaper. Any other comments or questions? What, how do people respond to the play then? What do people think they're going to see when I hope you all come and, come and see the play? What, what, how do people feel about the way that play was going, the way it was, it was taking us in and, and, and maybe challenging some of our preconceptions about uh, the life of Sid Barrett? Yes, please. Yeah. One of the things, again, not so much with the book, so I didn't play, but in 's saying Sid waited in the car outside Ordi Lang's office is that the that's, that's reality apparently so, historical detail yes okay um, the Ordi Lang sorry you're taking me back to the very first Scottish mental health arts I, film I think festival one thing yeah. to be said about that yeah. was that when the idea of making an appointment with Ordi Lang was suggested Lang said well you know, he's got to want to come and see me. Oh, yeah, yeah, it'll be cool, it'll be cool, we'll talk to him, we'll talk to him, it'll be fine, you know, we'll build up to mm. it. And what actually happened was they just said, well, come on, the car said, you know, we're going around somewhere, and then parked out said, okay, we're going to go in and see Ronnie Lang, you know. And like, no, we're not. And, and they didn't build up to it, 
and yeah. they just dropped it on sure. him when he was actually sure. in the car yeah. outside. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't some kind of gentle mm-hmm. coaxing. Hey, mm-hmm. Do you think this might be a good idea? Yeah. Maybe we could try it. It didn't happen. It just like here we are. Uh, but uh, no, I, I chaired an interesting question and answer session after the play. Didn't you used to be Ordi Lang at the very first uh, mental health film and arts sure. festival? And, and his family were all there. And it was, you know, it, it's Ordi Lang is a tough t- topic. I think what comes across in the excerpt is Ordi Lang. Uh, did speak a lot in metaphor and did, did actually uh, talk about the experience of psychosis in very metaphorical terms and talked about language and, and differences there. What I'm afraid came out of Ordi Lang was a whole, I'm afraid, few decades where it was blaming so-called schizophrenogenic mothers, you know. It was actually blaming uh, parents uh, for the mental health difficulties of their children. And I think that put back their, you know, their recovery the movement of psychiatry, whatever you want to call it, uh, quite a bit, actually. And there's still hurt there. I still meet people who are parents of now deceased people with schizophrenia because people with schizophrenia will die on average 17 years before their time. And they still feel blamed by that. And they didn't feel uh, psychiatry. And I was at school at the time, so don't don't throw it on me. Uh, But they didn't feel psychiatry responded to that. Uh, I have to say that the first psychiatrist I ever saw was on the telly. My cousin Gay Byrne was interviewing him. And uh, he threw Ordi Lang off Irish TV for being drunk. And he threw off the guy with him who was the professor of psychiety that I then studied with some years later. So I, f- I feel these, these things are all synchronous. Someone could write a song about it. Okay, any other comments or questions? Uh, people who, who are here because they love the music, people who, who thought they knew. If you ever want to ask a question about Sid Barrett, now's your chance. <laughs> Lee. Come and show yourself, Andrew. Producer. Yeah, the spare microphone's up here. Programmer. <laughs> writer. For me, the reason I want to commission this play, it's various reasons. One that purely historical and coincidental one that this would have been since or rather Roger's 70th birthday year. It was also the 10th year of our festival. And that's a very fascinating subject to explore in the context of mental But, um, yeah, but that, that's, to be honest, I didn't think that far beyond that. Because it, it's, it, I think it's a, it's, it raises, as we've seen today over the past 40 minutes, raises all kinds of fascinating questions about, uh, about mental health, about, about the definition of uh, it, it, it's, it's, he's, Do you think he had a terror? Do you think he had a terror of fame? He was afraid then the f- paintings themselves would become talking points, and next thing people won't just say hello to him on the street, but they would stop him on the street and feel they owned him. And I, I think, yeah. and here I'm about to start imputing something on uh, Barrett's mental processes, which I've been trying to avoid. But I, I have a strange feeling, and it's, it's based on another well-known Scottish figure, which um, <laughs> has got nothing to do with the charming world of psychedelic pop. And that's uh, a guy called Jimmy Boyle. Okay. Uh, Jimmy Boyle was, was best known as a Glasgow hard man who served a great deal of time in Berlin's special unit for his violent crimes. Uh, Jimmy Boyle took up sculpture. And when he came out, of course, it was, oh, you know, hard man takes up sculpture. And that was the story was his past. The story was not his mm. present. And to be absolutely fair to him, he vacated the UK and went to live in Italy 
where his past was unknown because he wanted to be judged on the merits of his art as a sculptor, not on being a reformed criminal who'd come back into mm, society mm. as something different. So I think with Barrett, if he'd actually allowed the paintings out, they would have become fetishised in the light of his, mm, his music and mm. his involvement with Pink Floyd. So, you know, I don't know what the processes were that he, he would take pictures, he would take Polaroids of the painting. So he was interested in the process of what he produced, but then he would destroy the original thing. But, you know, if you look at what happened after Roger Barrett died in 2006, there was an auction uh, of his household contents, and he used to love going to DIY shops with his sister Rosemary, and he would buy bits of kit furniture, you know, flat pipe furniture. And he would make these things, but he'd paint them all different colours. So he'd have chest drawers with a, a pink bit and a purple bit and a green bit and all the rest of it. He had a hippo door handle in the bedroom. And, you know, it just, just sort of playful messing around with things. And then he would throw those away and they'd go to the store and get more. And he would enjoy painting these things. So he just involved a process of doing stuff that was very colourful. Mm-hmm. But had it gone outside of his house, had that stuff gone into the, the public domain, then it would have suddenly become something else. Mm-hmm. The only engagement that that Roger Barrett made with anything to do with his musical past after 1974 was in the signing of 320 small sheets of paper um, in a book called Psychedelic Renegades, which was the photography that Mick Rock created around 1969, 71. There's a lot of the, the Madcap Laughs era album stuff in there, plus other photo shoots. And this was a beautiful and lavishly produced book. There was a deluxe leather-bound edition in a slipcase. Dougie Fields was a heavy contributor to that. And Barrett, in some sort of recognition of his long-standing friendship with Mick Rock, which went way back, signed 320 little slips of paper and just wrote Barrett on them, and they were pasted into the book. Now, Mm. that's the only engagement that Barrett made. They're just little slips of paper... And the the last one I saw of those that went on eBay sold for £2,400. So that's the, the level of, of interest. You can imagine, you know, if there was actual Barrett paintings. Mm. Uh, they, you know, they, they turn up from time to time. There are a few, because there's a few of the, the early sure. stuff that he made sure. in Cambridge. There's very, very occasionally there's a Barrett work that comes up for sale and something like that. Okay, so I hope people realise we're, we're trying to interrogate the, 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 the facts, not just put them on some sort of mythical analyst couch and, and work it all out. But much of what you say does make me think of Neil Armstrong, you know, the first man on the moon, mm. who, who came back to the most immense scrutiny that probably any human being has ever had. You know, I don't know many people uh, got to hear about Jesus before his untimely death. But uh, what's interesting about... Neil Armstrong was, he put up with this and all the media scrutiny and all the interviews and all the doorstepping and then he just suddenly said stop and he took absolutely no more of it. He didn't become a recluse but he just said I'm not going to be that guy anymore. Is that the way you see Sid Barrett's uh, disengagement and his inability to have a, you know, as F. Scott Fitzgerald said there are no second acts in American life. Is, is that the way you might to contextualize some, To some yeah. degree. I think one of the things that was interesting about Neil Armstrong was he was a very quiet, taciturn yeah. man. He wasn't Mr. Showbiz. He wasn't yeah. going to go out there on the variety shows. You know, this was not going to happen. And in that respect... It's a bit like Harry Parch, who was the last surviving soldier of World War I. It's great that those people were the figures who were in the positions that they were in. Neil Armstrong, because he wasn't full of pizzazz and nonsense about the space thing. Uh, Parch, because he wasn't full of gung-ho attitudes about war. They mm. were beautifully, contextually right people for those mm. roles that mm. their lives yeah. brought them to play. Um, Jenny Fabian who was the author of a semi-autobiographical novel called Groupie and who had some personal involvement with uh, Sid Barrett, said in the context of uh, when when I interviewed for my book that she felt that Sid got out at the right time. Now, there's some attitude of slight willfulness about Sid's playing with the processes that were going on in his mind towards other people. There's a famous incident where he went into a studio with a new tune called Have You Got It Yet? 
David Gilmore was already around at this point, and he's the person that, that recounts the story. And so Sid Barrett turns up and says, I've got a new tune. And he starts strumming this, this chord and starts singing something. Have you got it yet? And the rest of the band went, ah, no, no, not quite. Said, play it again. And he plays something completely different and then says, have you got it yet? No, no, can you give us it again? Said, have you got it yet? And so there's something playful about that. Mm. And Jerry Shirley, the drummer in uh, Humble Pie, who played on some Barrett solo work, mm. also comes up with a, a slight pun on the second Barrett album cover, the, the one called Barrett, that, which has got insects on the cover that Sid painted. And Jerry Shelley said, there were no flies on Sid. You know, he had something that, that was working there. Jenny Fabian's premise on this was that there were a great many of Sid's contemporaries in music who did not get out and who were really damaged to the point of being wiped out completely, or someone like, say, Peter Green, who mm. was damaged by his consumptions of acid and also his mental health processes, in a point where you know he was, was rendered as very difficult engaging with, with day-to-day life for mm. a long mm. time. Another thing that should perhaps be raised is just about the, the acid consciousness of that time and what was not understood. And I remember Kevin Ayers, the late Kevin Ayers, being very vituperative about how Pink Floyd didn't help Sid, didn't do what they should have done. He, he felt very badly that they, they let him down. But given the context of the time, the fact that any attempt was made to get Sid Barrett to go and see R.D. Lang, even if it was fluffed completely, shows that there was some effort and feeling mm. being made. Because mm. at that point, you know, Lysergic's acid um, had been used in various ways. It had been synthesised by Albert Hoffman in the 1940s. It had been used as a possible mental health therapeutic mm, tool. People famously, Frankie Howard took it, uh, Cary Grant took it, John F. Kennedy allegedly took it. Um, that, was, that was possible. The CIA were very interested in the possibilities of, of acid as well, in the way that, you know, could we drop this in a water supply and send a whole city into realms where we could just go in and, mm. and take over without conflict? There were lots of interests in different angles of what that could be. So the way that it could affect somebody and the way that a bad trip, as it was known, could actually damage someone in a way that would have recurrent effects when they were no longer taking acid was not something that was understood. Mm. You know, and, and there's, there's a lot of the context of the time. You can look at it now and say, well, you know, Barrett was very badly served. But yeah. a lot of it in the context of the time, lack of understanding and people trying to get on with their lives. And in the case of of Pink Floyd, you know, the, the pressure on them mm. to make a new hit single, come up with this, deliver the goods, go on top of the pops, be this, be that, be over there, tour here, tour there. You know, they are given a possibility. Mm. And in the case of Roger Waters in particular, you know, he's, he's suspended a, a career as an architect and he's gone and thrown his eggs into this basket of being a pop star. Mm. And suddenly... The person who's writing the material for the band isn't writing the material for the band anymore. What are we going to do? Are we going to fold? Are we going to go back? Are we going to try and develop Mm, what we've got? And you can see, you know, much as I'm sure we'd all like to be uh, see ourselves as doing the right thing by our friends, if somebody puts a gun to your head and says, right, what are you going to do? Are you going to play the show or are you going to fold? Ah, okay, we're going to play the show, and I can kind of see where that comes from. It's intriguing. We're we're heading for Train Spotting 2, and and Danny Boy's idea about the original Train Spotting was always that he wanted to show that people have a great time. I'm I'm, I'm rephrasing it. People have an effing great time (laughs) when they start taking drugs, but he also wanted to show the dark side, and within Train Spotting, there's a real grim dark side to, uh, you know, drug-taking, and you see the effects in people like Ozzy Osbourne, I guess, and you see lots of people who took lots of drugs and then have a kind of deficit after that. Sir, you had a question halfway down. Are you still interested in, in, in asking it? Yeah, yeah. I'm asking about the speculation that Ozzy Osbourne was taking drugs. 
Well, I mean, just to give up and being in the public eye. Yeah, I, I would imagine that might be the case. I mean, I, I think it, it's difficult now because there's a whole generation out there raised on X Factors and Britain's Got Talent who want fame sort of at any cost and usually for very little talent and very little effort. And uh, uh, But I, I would certainly... Um, I, I do know of a number of, of authors who, who are there to write and they, they write in all seasons on their own, looking out a window, you know, waiting for the, collect the kids at school or whatever, but they don't want to promote their books and they don't want the sort of showbiz scrutiny that we've just been speaking about. So, yes, I think that's certainly the case. Uh, yeah, it, it does occur to me. And it's a really, it's a really hard uh, existence there because you're pitching yourself and you have to be the guy with the or the woman with the angle or the, the different quirk that, you know, that I've overcome this to write this or whatever the, the agenda is of a particular interview. Any other questions or comments? I imagine we can get maybe uh, one or two more before we, we close. Yes, please. And, and you, you raise an interesting little point about disappearing from social media. I can think of, of one friend of mine who uh, does that for the same reasons. And um, when uh, this person does go offline for a little while, her profile will disappear from other people's circles. And then she'll get someone contacting her to say, why have you unfriended me? And that, that just heaps a whole load of extra mm. pressure on. You know, that's, that's mm. pre pre a pretty appalling possible outcome of, of just mm. wanting to get a little bit of peace in your head, yeah. It's a different discussion, but isn't it impossible to delist from Facebook? I don't do Facebook. It takes months and months, doesn't it, to... Mm. Switch it off. Switch it off, OK. Yeah. Excellent. OK, any other questions or comments? Uh, yes, please, Sasha, yeah. I'll start. Um, I, I wrote this about this 20 years ago, and I, I called it something that is actually quite topical this week. Uh, I called it the Steve Davis syndrome, where uh, I remember hearing a snooker commentator saying, you know, as Steve thinks about potting this brown, he'll remember the red he missed in the second frame. And I remember thinking just what nonsense it is to think about something that happened so many years ago, and we think we know. And I, I really dis dislike this sort of psychobiography where somebody says that this shot in Alfred Hitchcock's rear window is because Alfred Hitchcock has a small boy and then they tell a story that might be true or might probably not be true. So generally speaking, I think we can engage and we can speculate. The great joy about working in mental health and representations of mental health is that, um, well, joy, but it's also a great challenge. It's, it's what people think they know. Uh, and that's the challenge. So... I wouldn't answer that question. I wouldn't speculate. Uh, it isn't just that, for me, he's, he's a real person now and he's much better fleshed out since I, I took on just this session because I've, I've now learnt things about him that I, I unlearned things about him uh, more than I've learnt things about him, even though I've learnt quite a lot about him from this man beside me. But what do you think of, of Sasha's theory? That it was, you say, drugs, the pressure of fame, uh, creativity. Yeah. 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 Well, first of all, I would deny, not just in this context, but in all contexts, any description that labelled me as an expert in anything. It's kind of you, but I'll deny it, and I'll reference the great uh, exponent of word jazz and, and voiceover hero, Ken Nordine, who says, everyone's an amateur. Nobody lives long enough to be anything but an amateur. So I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. But um, 
in answer to your question, if I may excuse myself for being flippant there, um, yes, I think there was a little bit of archness of, of fun about Barrett. He he loved puns, he loved wordplay, he loved horsing around, you know, he had a sense of fun. And yet I think there were times, as in the Have You Got It Yet incident, where he used that sense of fun in a slightly arch way in company. But I don't think that anyone could live through a whole life acting out the role of being Sid Barrett. And, and I think that, you know, he was, he was a genuine figure who certainly according to his sister, according to his nephew Ian, according to his family members, I must fly the flag for Barrett creativity, Ian Barrett cufflinks. Um, he was a very genuine figure who just wanted to get on with living the life that was going on between his, his ears and in the, the world that he managed to create as a cushion between himself and what was going on outside. And I, I don't feel that you could live in such a fashion falsely, or if you could, not for very long. Okay. All right. Last word, sir, yeah. Yeah, on learning. Is it true that Sid actually came in during the recording of Trenton and Pretty Diamond, or is that another myth? It is true, but again, um, it is true through various versions of it and different members of the band say, oh yeah, I saw him, you saw him. No, you saw him first. And that he turned up during the recording of, of Shine On You Crazy Diamond would appear to be a substantiated truth, but exactly what happened that day, who saw him, when he arrived, what was said, and when he left, the coins in the air. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I'm reading, I'm starting to read the third of four biographies of Orson Welles by Simon Callow at the moment, and unlike... Um, all the stories made up about Sid Barrett. Orson Welles made up most of the stories about himself. <laughs> and he, he made up things like, I wrote the speech on the Ferris wheel and the third man, you know, and I, I've been in the BFI and I've seen Graham Greene's script. Graham Greene wrote that speech. And that, that was the nature of, of the fact that I think Orson Welles thought this whole celebrity thing was hilarious. Mm. He loved the idea of a man who starts at the top and works his way down. That was his great myth. And he, he, I suppose he reinvented it for himself. And he had a thick enough skin he to did, survive it. He did, but yeah. I guess it's different. I, I would imagine most of the rest of us, if we had had the talent that Sid had and the experiences and then uh, this immense just burst of fame, may, may have actually done something similar. So I, I think we shouldn't look at him as the, the abnormal one. We should look at him as the guy who actually probably got it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just after four o'clock, so we should take a break. I guess people will get ten minutes before the final wrap-up session. Lee, what, I'm looking to Lee, I'm looking to Andrew. Yep. Yeah. So give yourself a good comfort break. And uh, thank you very much for coming. This has been a really interesting and enjoyable session, so thank you. And uh, we'll thank John and our actors and Sasha as well. And come and see us Alan Bissett's play in October. Yeah, and thanks to Peter.